from the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Hello and welcome to Grapevine. This is volume 41, number 15, for week ending Friday the 16th of April 2021. This week's local news includes, as usual, the Covid facts and figures... The council reveals yet more money is to be spent on the town centre. How the easing lockdown has affected the local area and a close look at mollusks on the seafront. I am Graham, your presenter, and joining me is Andrew, your newsreader for the week, who's been venturing out with a recorder to chat to a local hotelier. Firstly, though, let's start with some news. Hello, everyone. It's Andrew here again, and I'm delighted to be bringing you some more news and stories here on Grapevine. There are no patients with coronavirus in critical care at Norfolk's hospitals for the first time in six months. Latest data shows there are currently four patients suffering from COVID-19 at the county's hospitals, but none in intensive care departments. And it's the first time since October the 26th last year that the figure has been reached. Moreover, there has not been as few as four people in hospital with coronavirus since September the 26th. The news serves as another welcome boost after statistics showed COVID infection rates had fallen even further. Norfolk had 12.6 cases per 100,000 in the seven days ending April the 9th, down from 20.7 a week prior. That's a drop of nearly 40%. By comparison, the east of England's infection rate stands at 21.2, while the country as a whole has a rate of 28.2. Kings Lynn recorded 39 new cases of the virus, but in the context of the pandemic, case rates in the county and across the country remain extremely low. In early January, when it was announced the UK would be plunged into another national lockdown, Norfolk's districts had rates of between 495 and 695 cases per 100,000. Broadland's case rate has declined dramatically, plummeting in the most recent seven-day period from 38.2 cases to just 3.8 cases per 100,000. And the latest rates for Norfolk's local authority areas are as follow, with all the figures per 100,000 people. Breckland, 11.4. Broadland 3.8, Great Yarmouth 9.1, Kings Lynn and West Norfolk 25.8, North Norfolk 2.9, Norwich 12.8 and South Norfolk at 17. The number of outbreaks in Norfolk has also tailed off, with only 49 as of April the 14th, compared to 91 seven days before. Outbreaks are declared when two or more people associated with the same non-residential setting contract COVID-19. Across care providers, there were nine open outbreaks compared to 31 on April 7th, a decrease of 71%. And outbreaks in schools and other educational settings were down from 26 to 16. It's really great to bring you some good news on the COVID front. And let's hope these latest figures herald a continued fall in cases and a continued return to some more normality. And talking of things being in a better place... Three Norfolk fish and chip shops have been named among the top 50 in the country, while a fourth was listed in the top 10 mobile businesses. 
The Fry Awards 2021, run by Fry Magazine, selected its top 50 shops and 10 mobile units after unannounced mystery diner visits, judging businesses on their food, customer service, social media presence and COVID practices. Despite the challenges of coronavirus, judges said overall marks were the highest in the awards history. Locally, Chish and Phipps on Angel Road in Norwich, Jason's Fish and Chips in Rackheath and My Place Fish and Chips in Galston were listed among the top 50. Jason Fish of Jason's said it felt like quite an achievement. The competition is independently audited by a mystery shopper, he said. You do not know when they are coming in and it is done by a person in secret who judges you on all aspects of the business, the service, the quality of the fish and chips and loads of other stuff. What a great job. We scored 100 out of 100, which meant we were among the top of the top 50. We were very pleased and you could say we battered the competition. He said it meant a lot to make the top 50, particularly as it had been a difficult time for the hospitality business. People seem to be very conscious about where they are spending their money since COVID and seem to be keen to support small independent businesses, he said. The judges also assess your work on things like sustainability as well as check what your involvement is with the community. It's about the whole package, although ultimately the standard of the fish and chips is the most important thing. Elsewhere, Tropics 2 in Dursingham was listed among the best fish and chip fans. Curtis Green of Tropics, a family-run business, said the secret to their success was the quality of the product, reasonable price and service. And while the business usually visits festivals, fates and events, he said during the pandemic they had focused more on the villages around the Dursingham area. Staying on a fast food theme, the food delivery company Deliveroo is launching in Great Yarmouth. Among the 45 restaurants available on the app from Thursday, April 15th are local businesses including Istanbul Kebab and Pizza House, the Olive Garden in Galston and Bombay Nights, as well as franchises such as Burger King, Frankie and Benny's, KFC, Papa John's and Subway. Deliveroo is looking for up to 50 people in Great Yarmouth to become couriers. The company announced in January it was looking to reach 100 more towns and cities as demand for its delivery service had soared during the pandemic. Harrison Foster, regional director in the UK, said launching in Great Yarmouth is a key milestone for Deliveroo. Great Yarmouth has a thriving foodie community and a wide range of restaurants and retailers, so we're excited to connect with them. We look forward to working with our new partners to reach a new customer base and expand their businesses. Council news now, and the council is to splash out £1.9 million on Great Yarmouth Town Centre. Great Yarmouth Borough Council, with Historic England and Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust, is launching a £1.9 million four-year town centre renovation project, which it says will have the community and heritage at its heart. Covering the marketplace, the rows and the northern end of King Street, the new High Street Heritage Action Zone involves local people in repairing, conserving and building a better understanding of the area's historic buildings and sites. It will complement the wider investment ambitions which are supported by the £13.7 million future High Street funds and the £20 million town deal. The High Street Action Zone scheme is supporting work on parts of the town wall alongside the marketplace where scaffolding is already in place as part of preparations and the next project will be the restoration of the wrought iron railings at St Nicholas Priory Primary School. Many of you will know that of course as the old hospital school. The High Street Action Zone will also help repair and improve historic buildings in Market Row and go towards landscaping the marketplace 
to complement the £4.6 million marketplace redevelopment that's already underway. There are further action zone projects including the repair and reuse of two target buildings in King Street and the marketplace. Carl Smith, the council leader, said, We're putting Great Yarmouth's rich cultural heritage and fantastic community at the heart of our exciting vision for investment, regeneration and recovery. Thanks to funding secured from Historic England, this complimentary 1.9 million suite of High Street Action Zone projects will harness and enhance key historic buildings and heritage to help revitalise the town centre, involving the local community and a wide range of other partners. Bernard Williamson, Chairman of Great Yarmouth Preservation Trust, said the High Street Action Zone will see the project partners work with a range of local groups and organisations to involve the people of the town. Hands-on training and workshops in traditional building techniques and skills, as well as research projects and opportunities to engage with heritage through art. Tony Calladine, Regional Director for Historic, said, I'm looking forward to see how the local businesses and communities come together to work on these projects. That's really good news, isn't it? Meanwhile, out in the rural areas, a well-trampled countryside track on the coast will be resurfaced following concerns about its condition. Norfolk County Council will be replacing the surface of a wet and muddy section of low road between Empson's Loke and Low Farm in Winterton in the coming weeks. Low Road is a narrow and unmade track used mainly by ramblers, horse riders and cyclists. The scheme, scheduled to take place between April the 19th and May the 14th, will be carried out at the same time as work by Essex and Suffolk Water to provide a water supply to the nearby allotments. Some residents had expressed concern the track might be widened and then resurfaced with tarmac, leading to vehicles using the road, or that work would disturb birds nesting in the hedgerows flanking the path. In response, a County Council spokesperson has said, We will be putting down a new surface made up of compacted granite stones, not asphalt, to ensure it is in keeping with the current surface. The team have been working closely with an ecologist to ensure habitats and important ecological features are identified and protected, and no nesting birds are disturbed while the work is underway. Any necessary cutting back of vegetation was completed ahead of the nesting season, they said. As the track is a restricted byway, motorised vehicles are not permitted to use it unless for private access, statutory undertakings or highway maintenance. That's great to see everybody working together on that. A man recruited his friends and staged his own violent kidnapping in a bid to get his own family to pay a £400 ransom. Kyle Nunn made harrowing phone calls, sent Facebook messages and made video calls featuring two hammer-wielding men in a derelict building, Norwich Crown Court heard. The 29-year-old told his family he had been hit with a hammer and kneecapped and said if the £400 was not paid, the beatings would continue. Joe Bird, prosecuting, told the court that the family could get £200 and Nunn later turned up at Norwich Railway Station where the money was handed over. Police had also been called and found Nunn, who was with two other men, who had appeared in the bogus video. Mr Bird said Nunn was found uninjured, and it was then it was found the whole kidnap was a complete ruse to try and extort money. Nunn, who initially gave police a false name, was arrested and interviewed and later charged with blackmail on September the 13th and 14th last year. Nunn of Seaforth Drive, Hopton, appeared at the Crown Court for sentence on Tuesday, April the 13th, having previously admitted Blackpool. Sentencing none to two years' imprisonment, Judge Anthony Bates said Blackmail was a serious and nasty offence 
and insisted it was his public duty to sentence you to immediate imprisonments. Judge Bates said Nunn had set up a, quote, bogus kidnap scenario in which he purported to be the victim and had involved others to give some credence to what was happening. David Stewart, mitigating for Nunn, who has 31 convictions for more than 70 previous offences, with a long history of debt due to his drug addiction, has said that he had mental health issues. The supermarket chain Asda, with stores across Norfolk, has started a consultation process with more than a thousand workers. The firm said that it was treating the redundancy as the last option, with the move blamed on changing tastes among shoppers. As many as 1,200 staff work at the in-store bakeries across the 341 nationwide Asda branches. If the proposals are enacted, the priority will be to move as many colleagues as possible into alternative roles within Asda, with redundancy the last option, the company said in a statement. Customers are increasingly looking for speciality breads, wraps, bagels and pancakes rather than traditional loaves. This shift will see a centralised bakery delivering a larger range of pre-baked goods to supermarkets each day, replacing people baking from scratch on site. As the Chief Merchandising Officer Derek Lawler said, The current in-store bakery model has restricted our ability to respond to changing customer demands and offer them the speciality products and freshly baked goods they want to buy throughout the day. The changes we are proposing will deliver a much better and more consistent bakery offering for customers across all our stores. We know these proposed changes will be unsettling for colleagues and our priority is support them during this process. Asda's move follows a similar decision by Tesco taken just over a year ago which put up to 1,800 jobs at risk. A woman's appeal against a condition imposed on her bid to convert a 150-year-old pub into a house has been rejected. The Wheelwright's Arms on Beckles Road in Galston is owned and run by Deborah Beavers and her husband. Last year, Ms Beavers applied to Great Yarmouth Borough Council to transform the venue into a residential dwelling. While the bid was approved, the council also imposed a condition stipulating the change of use could be carried out only by Ms Beavers and that if the premises ceased to be occupied by her, the building would have to return to being a pub. The reason, according to the council, was, quote, to prevent the permanent loss of a community facility. There has been a pub on the site since at least 1856. Ms Beavers then took the case to the planning inspectorate, where she appealed against the condition, asking if it was reasonable or necessary. In a decision notice published last month, Inspector Jonathan Price stated that a pub such as the Wheelwright Arms might continue to function as a community facility, in his words, fostering personal contact between groups and individuals and generating community spirit and a sense of place. The inspector accepted that the business has become increasingly less profitable in recent years and faced strong competition from other bars in Goulston, but that evidence of unsuccessful marketing of the property as a pub over a reasonable period would be necessary before reaching any conclusion on the acceptability of an unconditional residential use. He continued, In the absence of such a period of unfruitful marketing, I consider that the contested condition remains both reasonable and necessary to prevent the permanent loss of a potentially viable community facility in this area. The pub's owners have been contacted for comment by the Yarmouth Mercury. And according to a post on the venue's Facebook page, 
It has not reopened since April the 12th loosening of lockdown restrictions, but its landlords are, quote, keeping a close eye on restriction and re will reopen when it is safe to do so. Now, in other pub news, a Norfolk hotel and Thai restaurant, which suddenly closed in 2019, is still for sale, but the price has dropped by £150,000. The former pub, the Horse and Groom in Rollsby, shut and a notice appeared at the premises at the time stating that its tenant, Than Van Thung of Roxham Road, had a county court judgment for debts and the property later went up for sale for £975,000. The pub, with seating for 80 in the restaurant and 21 bedrooms in the property and landscape grounds with a large car park, is now for sale at the reduced price of £825,000. The most recent use has been as a restaurant operating all year round, seven days a week, said the Agents East. It also comes with private accommodation above the pub with two bedrooms. With bars, beaches and the broads set to be blessed with sunshine this weekend, pubs and eateries are priming the pumps for a surge of high spirits and high demand. Inquiries for Friday night are said to be soaring as workers look to enjoy their first chance to socialise, ushering in a bank holiday vibe. On Great Yarmouth Seafront, where the popular Marine pub has opened its outdoor space, landlady Kerry Gedge is a new face welcoming punters as restrictions are relaxed. Although known to many through the Great Eastern and the Albion pubs on Nelson Road, which are also hers, it is her first season at the seafront venue, known for being family-friendly and boasting an upstairs terrace. She said everyone is expecting everywhere to be busy. It's been cold, but people are still out. You never quite know how it's going to go, but potentially it could be very busy. Let's hope it's going to be a good weekend. We only have our outside open, and when it's full, it's full. Meanwhile, at the Jube in Great Yarmouth Market Gates, Bradley Fish was confident of a bumper weekend. His terrace, which proved a big draw last summer, had been expanded and improved to meet demand, making space for up to 80 people. Mr Fish said he was operating on a first-come, first-served basis because of the logistics around booking systems and people not turning up. Come early to avoid disappointment, he said. I think we're going to be rammed. With heaters and wind sails making the area as sheltered as it could be within the restrictions, he said he was preparing for good numbers, enjoying a socially distanced night out, now the government say it's safe to do so. We're prepared and we have plenty of staff, he said. We've expanded the terrace so we can take more people as safely as possible. We're doing what has been asked of us. All we ask now is for people to drink responsibility and enjoy themselves in the manner they are allowed to for now and to take reasonable precautions. It's only a matter of weeks till we can all come back inside and start dancing. For the time being, he's opening evenings from 5pm until late and weekends midday until late. Meanwhile, out on the Norfolk Broads at Thurn, the Lion Pub was also planning for a busy weekend. With outdoor capacity for 120, as well as picnic blankets to hire and takeaways available, Ricky Malt said, we are staffing to be full. Although the pub is not taking bookings, it was inquiries for Friday night that stood out as people wanted to end their working week on a high, ushering in a bank holiday vibe. He said so far, since pub gardens were allowed to open on Monday, Tuesday had been marginally more busy and slightly warmer. On the weather forecast, sunny intervals with a moderate breeze are predicted for both Saturday and Sunday. Although with temperatures sitting at around 10 degrees, people will still need to wrap up. 
Yes, and I don't think you'll be needing much ice in the G&Ts either. A teenager who's been visually impaired since birth is taking on the challenge of walking eight and a half miles from his home in Kirkley to the James Paget Hospital. 15-year-old Ryan had a difficult start to life after being born at just 24 weeks after his mum Anne had HELP, which is H-E-L-L-P syndrome, a pregnancy condition that complication that affects the blood and liver. Since moving to Lowestoft from Watford in October, Ryan has been treated by the NHS ophthalmology department at the JPH hospital. Despite not being able to walk outside safely on his own, Ryan has been inspired by Captain Sir Tom Moore and will raise money for the NHS ophthalmology department. Ryan's mum Anne Reid said, Ever since he moved to Lowestoft, he's wanted to do something to raise money after seeing Captain Sir Tom Moore on TV. He had to think about who he wanted to raise money for and he decided on the ophthalmology department at the hospital as a thank you for helping him with his eyes since moving here. Ryan was put on a ventilator because he was born without any lungs and the amount of time he spent on the ventilator caused damage to his eyes which meant he was slowly going blind. Ryan is now severely sight impaired after going through three lots of laser surgery when he was just a few months old but this has not stopped him taking on the challenge. Miss Reid said the first few years of Ryan's life were very difficult and he was struggling to stay alive. He told me he's going to be very emotional when he crosses that line. Ryan's target for fundraising was 300 and he's already raised over 900 which is fantastic and the support he has received has been incredible. Ryan will take part in the eight and a half mile walk on Saturday May the 8th will leave his house at 10am in Kirkley and aim to get to the James Paget by 2pm. Now you can support and donate to Ryan at his fundraising page on the hospital website and let's hope that that courageous young man does this wonderful challenge. Good luck to you Ryan. One of the biggest casualties of the pandemic has been charities and Norfolk's own charities have estimated to have lost £120 million during the pandemic putting the squeeze on the county's most vulnerable people. Services and staff were cut as 12 months of restrictions deprived organisations of their traditional ways to generate income. The difficult situation is revealed in a report by the Norfolk Voluntary Community and Social Enterprise Sector, the VCSE, into the impact of COVID. But despite the problems, the report said many organisations were confident of bouncing back. The bleak financial outlook was reflected by East Anglian Children's Charity Break, which launched an emergency appeal this week to help recover some of the 2.1 million reduction in income due to COVID. The Norfolk VCSE COVID report said organisations on average reported a £2,713 fall in monthly income during the pandemic, and nearly half of all organisations locally reported financial concerns. John Climo, Chief Executive of Community Action Norfolk, said there was an expected £198 million loss to the local sector during the pandemic, with national figures suggesting an overall 31% fall in general income for charities. The VCS report states Norfolk's annual income is approximately £384 million, with 31% of this being £119 million. Mr Climo said, what we have seen is that around three quarters of organisations operated on some level throughout lockdown, but we are increasingly seeing 
that fall of income result in cutting the cloth with reducing services and redundancies. He added that there had been a, quote, perfect storm of financial struggles combining with increasing demand for services due to the demands of community hardship and mental health during the pandemic. Sean Moore, the chairman of Norfolk Blood Bikes, which transport urgently required medical items to hospitals in Norfolk and the East Anglian Air Ambulance, said the loss of supermarket collections, fates and carnivals had a big impact financially. All fundraising events were cancelled, apart from two collections in December along Gentleman's Walk in Norwich. Gina Dormer, Chief Executive of Vision Norfolk, which supports people with sight loss, said there was financial pressure before COVID, but the pandemic made the situation a lot, lot worse, with fundraising activities on hold. Mrs Dormer said, I can't put a monetary value on it, but it has been very, very difficult. We are currently in the process of meeting about restructuring the charity and regrettably reducing some of the activities we do to rebuild in a better environment. From our point of view, it is a really sad time, but we want to continue to help people with visual impairment and continue to give them the support they need. The charity has hubs in Great Yarmouth, Kings Lynn and Norwich, with online sessions and telephone calls increasing during the pandemic. The Perfleet Trust homeless charity in Kings Lynn has already adapted to the pandemic after the government instructed to close its day centre at the beginning of the first lockdown. Paula Hall, chief executive, said... We identified that in order to recover from initial impact of the pandemic, we needed to respond not just to immediate needs of our clients, but also to future-proof the organisation. The main financial impact of COVID for us has been through loss of fundraising events over the last 13 months. And whilst this has had an impact on our finances, we are now planning ahead for the next 12 months and looking at innovative ways to involve our ever-supportive community. Dr Christopher Bushby, Chief Executive of the Big C, said the charity thought it would lose money during lockdown, but it managed to generate £1.5 million. He said that was because of financial intervention from the government, including furlough, the fact that the charity did not have to pay business rates, and grants and a cash windfall from the National Lottery. Elsewhere, the Merle Body Centre in Swaffham, which provides services for people with dementia and mental health issues, has achieved the support it needs to survive. Marketing Director Ian Pilcher said, The charity adapted quickly to restore services through socially distanced bubbles with reduced numbers of daily attendees. Jamie Kowalek of Norfolk Community Foundation said many charities had faced stark challenges over a year of restrictions but praised the, quote, surging commitment to help charities out in crisis from supporters and volunteers. He added, As demand for help has risen, so too has the cost of doing things differently, from extending staffing hours and adopting digital approaches to launching new outreach services. Many charities have faced unplanned costs in order to continue their work. Much more news still to come, but first Andrew has been out with the recorder talking to someone with whom one of our regular newsreaders is very familiar. Now, today on Grapevine, I'm lucky to be able to do an outside broadcast and I'm in the lovely surroundings of the Imperial Hotel on Yarmouth North Drive, where my guest today is owner Nick Mobbs. Nick, welcome to Grapevine. Thank you very much, Andrew. And can I start by asking you something about this hotel's history? Certainly, Andrew. I mean, the hotel 
was uh, actually built at the turn of the last century, so that was in the 1890s. I think we've had a Kelly's directory where we found a uh, first rates bill paid about 1896, 1897. Mm -hmm. And it was built by a chap who was quite interesting called uh, Joe Powell. Um, he was a, a Yarmouth man, a, an entrepreneur, I think, uh, and uh, interesting stories about him. He used to drive his uh, coach and with his horses on and get caught for speeding and bits and pieces like that. He built the Garibaldi, um, first of all, which was uh, is now where Saint, uh, Sainsbury's is, or in that region, oh, on, no, yes. on, on St Nicholas Road. And uh, his idea was um, that was going to be, and it was, an all-male hotel. The Garibaldi boys. The Gary boys, and mm -hmm. they used to come uh, by boat uh, from London, and I've seen the pictures, and there's yeah. lots of pictures about of them there. And then he thought that that was such a roaring success that he would then build the Imperial Hotel, and uh, that would be an all-ladies hotel, and that was his idea. When he built the hotel, it had about 80-odd bedrooms. They must have been the size of shoeboxes. Mm -hmm. But uh, the old ladies' hotel uh, was not a success. I don't think it ever got off the ground, to tell you the truth. So uh, it was put out pretty quickly to, to management, and uh, the, the building was leased out. Um, and uh, I've seen various broch brochures uh, from the 18, no, sorry, the 1920s. Um, with uh, it used to it used to be called the resident manager, and at the time his name was Mr. Flowerdew. In fact, a couple of years ago, we actually had someone come in tracing his great grandfather's ancestry because he knew his he had been here as the resident manager. Anyway, to cut a long story short, 1933, uh, my grandfather uh, Campbell Lindsay, uh, who uh, was went in his heyday, was pretty well known in, in, in the town. Lots, lots of people knew Campbell. Uh, he, he'd been coming up and down to Yarmouth uh, for a number of years uh, in the herring industry, so staying with uh, a chap called uh, Mr. Beckett, I can't think of his Christian name at the moment, he had a guest house anyway in, uh, in Great Yarmouth and they saw the future for tourism and so he cobbled together uh, a group of investors, there was ten of them actually, uh, some of his family from Scotland and some, some of the, the Delft family. Um, and uh, they bought the Imperial Hotel in 1933. Um, I've still got the original balance sheet. I found it in the roof a few years ago. So they, they started off, um, uh, I don't think it would ever been a hotelier before, but they soon found their feet and had a few good years of trade. But then obviously the Second World War came along and uh, it was requisitioned by the, by the army in 1935. And, uh, for, for troops? For troops, yeah. Uh, and uh, they, uh, well, he was working then in partnership with a chap called Joe Delph. Mm -hmm. um, there was a, a long-serving employee who was uh, my grandfather's right-hand man called uh, Billy King. For those of you who can remember the amateur dramatics, he was a big amateur dramatics man with uh, Bob Moore and Derek Marshall, uh, yeah. people from the past. Mm. Well, anyway, so it was requ requisitioned uh, by the army and uh, quite a lot of documentation about that. And uh, they didn't get it back till 19, obviously 1945. I've got some very interesting uh, correspondence uh, between uh, Campbell and the, I think it was called the, the people who gave us some money to put the building back to how it was, as it had been tr uh, trashed by yeah. the by the army. Uh, it really had, you know, obviously hobnail boots and up down the stairs and all the rest of it. It was in a bit of a state. Um, they slowly uh, the, the, they slowly got things back up and running, and they picked up some contracts. Uh, 
with some coach companies from, from the Midlands and by the sort of late 40s, early 50s, they'd set, set off as a seasonal hotel. And we're then starting to move into the 50s, 60s, the golden coming up the golden age of the seaside holiday yeah that, that, that's correct and so so they, they it basically was a, a coaching hotel all the rooms were no private bathrooms um uh, even in my lifetime i can remember the fact that we had uh, uh toilets uh, they were actually called wc's at the WCs. time wc's <laughs> on the corridor with a, with a separate bathroom yeah and uh so then uh, it things progressed in the 70s uh the foreign holidays came along and the competition and so we slowly went down from 80 odd bedrooms to 39 bedrooms everyone having a private bathroom and uh, my, my father joined the business uh, in in the in the in the early 60s he he'd, he'd been uh, working on the road as uh, a, 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 a for Vandenbergs so uh, people who make margarine mm-hmm. etc he was a traveling salesman married my mother and then came into the business he always wanted to be a, a, a cook or a chef, so he then went off to Norwich City College in the 60s and trained for that. And that gave my grandfather the, the sort of ability to sort of go out on his own. So he, uh, he then split from, because the, the business was a partnership with the Delfts and, uh, and, and Campbell Lindsay, and they took the Burlington and he took the Imperial Hotel. Uh, and uh, he, father obviously joined in the 60s, as I said, and then he, he, he worked in the kitchens. Campbell was front of house. Uh, and that 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 lasted till well, I don't know, sort of late late seventies, early eight, yeah, late seventies. Um, when did you join? And I joined the business. Uh, I I I went to Glasgow University, did hotel studied hotel keeping, and uh, joined the business in nineteen eighty four. From there, so you've obviously seen a lot of change in the hotels in the town, even from the golden age of the sixties and seventies. It's still evolving. Yeah, yeah, it's t- totally evolving. I mean, I mean, it, I think the key to to, to hotel business in, in this town was, or some certainly a lot of businesses that didn't have the foresight really to invest in their in in their properties, uh, um, and, and and people expectations uh, are always they want as good as you've got you've got at home if not better. if not better yep. so it, to, to think that you could just open up in May and go round uh, with a duster and take the dust off and what you've been serving last year or selling last year i.e. your bedrooms you would be good enough this year for, for yeah for 20 years or 30 years it was but then uh, there was a slow decline and mm. uh, by the time that people realised that they needed to be doing something it was just too late because the banks wouldn't lend against a property which had no revenue no. No, but one of the one of the big things I think that that Imperial is is well known for is you've developed a lot of top chefs in the region. I'm thinking Richard Hughes, Mark Dixon. Yeah, I mean my, that that obviously uh, originated uh, with my father. As I said, he he'd always wanted to be a cook, so or a chef, so I say. And so in the sixties, he uh, went off to college, and uh, he he's yeah he we, we've always always believed in in apprenticeships here, even mm. from, from the sixties and onwards. And so I know it's a, uh, with politicians, it's a trendy thing to do, and then it's not a trendy thing to do. But being honest, we've had apprentice chefs uh, right from the pre- time he started, and and uh, and. I, th- I think he, he gave them all the people who some people have stayed some people have moved on all a very good grounding and probably Richard Hughes was one of his first apprentices who was uh, who, who made it into the stardom of, uh, right. uh, of the Norfolk uh, chef's brigade and I can remember when he I mean he's nearly 60 now and uh, 
but no, he is 60. I, and I can remember when he first came here. I mean, you wouldn't even do it now. He he came from the wilds of uh, North North Norfolk. We had to find digs for him. I mean, you don't even hear that word anymore. No digs. Yeah. Put him in digs with a. a we, so we had a landlady. Uh, and he and he started his training here, and he used to stay here for five days a week, and then occasionally he'd go home to see his uh, say his family, or he'd have his days off in in town. And 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 yeah, you you just learn the skills of of of, of being a chef, and then doing a, with it helped with the support of college by by doing day release. And there's been a been a number of them. There's been Richard Hughes, obviously was one. Um, as you say, Mark Dixon, Simon Wainwright. Um, uh, there's a, there's a chap called John Dickin who went off to Essex. There's uh, there's another one who's uh, who's in Australia. We've got Peter Clark who stayed with us since he was 16. Uh, there's been a whole host of lads uh, who are now young men who started to cut their teeth uh, at the Imperial Hotel. I think it's something my father should be very proud of. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I'm not sure they've all put their own particular stamp on things yeah. and, and helped you develop the reputation yeah. that you've got now as, as first class in Great Yarmouth and because this is a landmark building and a, probably the best known hotel in the area. So the future then Nick, obviously we've had one heck of a year uh, with the pandemic. How do you see things now? How do you see it recovering? Well in the, sh- in the short term uh, I think uh, Resort hotels, whether they be in Great Yarmouth or anywhere in the in the UK, will have a a busy time. Um, they're, they're, people want to go away. I think booking a holiday which requires airports and travel and possible quarantining uh, is is going to put people people off. And and I really, it's 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 too early days to tell because we just. We just don't know what the future holds. I mean, if the virus is going to be prevalent for a long period of time and our politicians are dead scared that uh, they're, we're going to be bringing back uh, various variants which uh, the, the vaccines cannot handle, uh, then I think uh, travel, international travel will be difficult for a long period of time. However, if the vaccines are very successful, probably in 12 months' time we'll all be back to normal. And I don't think the scientists know at this time, and we certainly don't know. But having been shut for the last four months, um, I'm really quite pleased to see that we've got some good advanced bookings and we will be able to claw back some of our losses that we've had from the last year of being not being able to trade. So as, as of this week, you're open in part? Yeah, we, we made the deci- we have a, we're fortunate that we, we put on the, the terrace, which is the glass frontage outside the mm-hmm. hotel, um, and it has an opening roof, which is uh, a bit. Of, uh, it wasn't foresight. It's just just good luck, really. And so that is class when the roof is open as outdoor dining. Uh, and so we made the decision to open from yesterday, which was Monday, to provide outdoor dining. And really, it's just so we can all come back to work um, because yeah, of I, I was really frightened. Uh, you know, after nearly four months of, of not working. Uh, that when we got the team back, and there is 40, that it would be like first day back at school. You, yep. know? you wouldn't yep. remember your times tables or, <laughs> or, or anything. So it's it's a good way of slowly, because it's only the terrace with social distancing, I think, you know, could probably only sit 40 people. Uh, it's a good way of just getting us back slowly, used to doing what we've been doing for the, for the last 100 years. Yeah, and then you await then the 17th of May, is it? 20, 21st, 20, 20, oh, no, sorry, 17, no, sorry, 17th of May is when you're allowed to stay in a hotel for other than business purposes, so leisure 
purposes um, but and that look does look busy but there's still quite a lot of restrictions uh, from that day the D-Day for us really is 21 June when uh, the government say they, it's total relaxation or whatever total relaxation will be when they've uh, the committee has reported back my gut feeling is it will not be total relaxation there will be uh, restraints on what we are allowed to do or, yeah. or what we're allowed to do in the building but in the meantime we keep our fingers crossed absolutely Nick, thanks ever so much for giving us uh, a, a great insight into hotel life and the history of this historic Yarmouth building. Thank you very much. Pleasure. Thank you, Andrew. Well, it makes a change to hear from Aileen's other half. OK, back to the news. As you may know, the Great Yarmouth skyline is now dominated by a 50-metre-high monster Ferris wheel. Towering over the Sea Life Centre garden, the giant wheel, nicknamed the Yarmouth Eye, is now open for all sightseers and thrill-seekers. It's been standing tall for a few weeks now and it has created a buzz. But what's it like? The Mercury sent reporter James Weed to climb inside one of the gondolas and give the big wheel a whirl. These are his words. At the very top, the view is breathtaking in all directions. Whether it is Braden Water if you face westwards, Lowestoft Wind Turbine if you look south and Caister Water Tower when looking north. Not forgetting, of course, the North Sea to the east and it's remarkable how blue the water is by Scroby Sands. When I visited, there was a family of seagulls nosing the wheel. I was very impressed with how quiet it was inside the gondola, and there was very little wind coming in through the doors. The entrance to the giant wheel is ramped for easier access, and there's a pram park for younger families. The gondolas also have enough space for one wheelchair user, and up to two carers. You can be at any height to ride, but you must be taller than 1.4 metres to ride without an adult. Tickets for the giant wheel are £8 for adults, £6 for children and £23 for a family ticket. And there are also discounts available for those who purchase tickets online. Now the giant wheel is directed by brothers Evan and Jake de Koning, And Evan said it's been very well received. We're very happy with the weather and we couldn't get much better, especially considering it was snowing last week. We've had nothing but good feedback and we're looking forward to the summer. The giant wheel is open from 11am to 7pm seven days a week throughout the summer season and I must say very impressive it looks too. Now as you know we've uh, had the easing back of the uh, lockdown restrictions so people have been surging back to pubs and cafes to hail the simple pleasure of a real chair and proper china crockery. After months of trailing the streets with cardboard cups and nowhere to sit South-facing tables were among the best place to benefit as pub gardens, gyms, hairdressers and non-essential shops were allowed to reopen. Vivian George and Mary Brown, both of Caister, were among diners to soak up the sun at Goulston's Pier Hotel, which arguably boasts one of the best seaside locations in Norfolk. Mrs Brown said it was lovely to be served a drink in a proper cup after months of drinking from takeaway containers. It's always lovely along here, she said, but to be able to sit in a proper seat with a proper cup, it's a whole different atmosphere today. Meanwhile, John and Francis Whitcomb of Hopton also headed to the spot for a hot drink and a bowl of chips amid a hubbub of chatter. We just had to come for a walk. We had been gazing in, hoping it would be open soon. You cannot beat it. Margaret Goss, manager at the Family Run Hotel, said she was heartened to see so many familiar faces back on the patio. Having opened at 8.30am for the first time since Boxing Day, the small team had served more than 100 people by midday. The weather is perfect, there is no breeze, and although it's a bit chilly, 
People have wrapped up, she said. We didn't know how it was going to be and it's been getting busier and busier, but we are thrilled to be open and to see our lovely regulars coming back. The hotel will open on May the 17th, heralding what looks to be a busy season as bookings flood in for the main summer months. She also hailed the support of her amazing staff. So far, only around 20% had been able to come back to work, but having such a keen team meant so much, she added. Elsewhere along the lower esplanade, a sprinkling of tables were occupied, and the yacht shop was busy putting out its array of colourful beach balls and buckets and spades. People could also be seen enjoying the service and views on the Cliffs Hotel terrace. The feathers in Galston High Street had most of its outside tables taken, and by lunchtime, a queue had formed outside the William Adams Weatherstone pub on Galston High Street. Now, not only hospitality, but hospitals themselves are ready to welcome visitors following the restriction easing. Visitors looking forward to see loved ones at James Paget University Hospital have been able to book their appointments from Wednesday the 13th of April. The Galston Hospital is now making appointments for visits to inpatient wards after announcing it would be partially lifting restrictions last week. Under the measures, patients who have been in hospital for more than 24 hours can receive a visitor daily for one hour. This booking must be made via the hospital's booking system. Visits can take place between 11am and 7pm. Bookings can be made between 9am and 3pm on Monday to Friday by calling 07435 554 841 or 07392-319-889. And a hospital spokesman said, We anticipate there will be a high demand to book visiting appointments and thank you in advance for your patience in contacting and speaking to the booking teams. Those arriving at the site must wash their hands, wear surgical masks and follow social distancing guidance at all times. Deputy Director of Nursing Jackie Copping said, We recognise that hospital visiting restrictions have been extremely difficult for patients, families and friends, but they have been necessary to keep people safe during the pandemic. Now that COVID-19 restrictions are being relaxed in the community, as infection rates have substantially decreased, we are pleased to be able to welcome more visitors back to our hospital, but in a way that keeps everyone safe. In line with the guidelines, anyone who has tested positive or showing symptoms of COVID-19 should not visit. And if you are unable to make your booked appointment, visitors are requested to ring the booking line to cancel their slot. There are some exceptions to the new visiting arrangements with those wishing to visit more vulnerable patients, including patients with learning disabilities or dementia, as well as those receiving end-of-life care. They're asked to contact the relevant ward directly to discuss their visit. Those with loved ones currently being treated in hospital can also continue to stay in touch via the Trust virtual visits, letters to loved ones and two heart schemes. There are no changes to arrangements for outpatient appointments. A pub garden in Great Yarmouth was brimming with early morning drinkers as restrictions relaxed. By 9.03am, that's 9.03am, Uptown Bar in King Street had pulled at least eight pints as regulars made a beeline for their favourite bar. Owner Michael McHugh said it was excellent to be able to reopen the doors and get back to serving punters. On Monday he said it was all the same faces who had turned out to sample a liquid breakfast at the venue where a pint of Foster's is £1.90 between 9am and 11am. 
As only a handful of watering holes with a 9am licence, it tended to serve the same band of drinkers who made it part of their daily routine, with Monday's pints being among the first pulled in Norfolk, he said. Among them was Bill Wardale, who said it was a doubly exciting day because not only was he back in the pub, he was also able to return to his holiday home in Caister. The 69-year-old foreman merchant seaman usually wintered in Benidorm, but had been staying with a friend who had also joined him at the Uptown Bar to celebrate its reopening. He said he was absolutely delighted to be back chatting with mates, adding, it's the friends we have missed. The 9am crowd of around 10 people also included 74-year-old Stanley Gudgeon. He said it was beautiful to be back. I really miss coming, he said. It's been lovely to put a pint to my lips. I could have done with a yard of ale. The Uptown Bar has been run by Mr McHugh and his wife Ingrid, the licensee, for 25 years, serving mainly older folk in the 40 to 80 age group. He said the pub had only been open for around five days in the last five months. We know that a few of our customers have been drinking with each other in their bubbles, but they will want to come back to socialise, and a lot of them have been counting down the days. Mrs McHugh said it had been lovely to see everyone again. The couple said they had been well supported on Monday morning, although a chilly start may be kept a few away, with people having to sit outside and be served at their tables under the government roadmap rules. Well, I expect they were one of just uh, many pubs that were busy on Monday. And the lockdown easing has brought joy, smiles and hope to Great Yarmouth Regent Road. One of Great Yarmouth's busiest shopping streets has been like a ghost town, traders and visitors have said. But all that changed on Monday as the bustle began to return to Regent Road. Uh, the easing of a spring lockdown, sorry, brought green shoots of hope to local businesses. Gemma Hodges, a Lando operator, was standing at the horse station with her horse Dottie, and she summed up the mood saying, it's really nice to be back. I had so many people wave at me this morning saying, hey, you're back, Miss Hodges said. To be fair, I'm not expecting lots of trade today, and a lot of it for me today is just to get out, get the horse out, and get the cab rolling for the rest of the season. Mark Southgate from Mildenhall was in town on a day trip, taking the family out to celebrate daughter Danielle's birthday. He said, we came over to celebrate Danielle's birthday and to celebrate the softening of the regulations. Great Yarmouth is something different and not on our normal route. We're all happy and our granddaughter Gracie is very happy to be out for the first time since she was a baby. When asked whether the family will be shopping, Mr Southgate said, we're not sure what's open yet, so we're just checking it out. Further down Regent Road, Morning coffee drinkers were enjoying the outdoor seating at Wright's restaurant. One customer, Vernon Cupsty, insisted it was the best coffee in Yarmouth. Wright's owner, Marios Charambades, said, We're open today and we have a positive attitude towards it. He, like many people, had found the latest lockdown tough. We had hopes of opening for the new year, but that was cut short, he said. It was disappointing because we'd only just got the ball rolling, all of our customers came back, and then it was a bit of a kick in the teeth. The restaurant is open seven days a week and is expecting a lot of trade for breakfast and lunch and he will, quote, play it by ear with regards to evening trade. Marius said he's also very hopeful to soon have more outside seating and said he'd like to invite new and old customers to have a coffee with us now that we're able to. People have also been desperate for haircuts over the past few months so it was little surprise to see the hairdressers on Regent Road, Hair For You, without an empty seat in store. Owner Mark Roberts said things haven't been easy. He was overwhelmed by the custom hair for you had received since opening earlier in the day. Sorry, I'm so emotional, he said. There's been a lot of people that have had more problems than some of us, 
But it hasn't been easy for any of us. Whether people have been lonely or worried about finances, it's all been very difficult. With a smile and tears down his cheek, Mr Roberts said, We are open today and business is very good. Yes, we're open seven days a week from 7.30am and we close when the last person goes home. I'm positive about the future. Yes, he certainly does sound so, doesn't he? And at the bottom of Regent Road, James Cullabine from Norwich was drinking a coffee and said, I've been up and down here in the winter just having a coffee and it's been dead as a doornail. But now I've come out today, the sun is shining and it's like everything has come back to life again. It's lovely. With Easter over, many traders lamented missing what is usually a good period for the trade but agreed positivity was returning and the future looked bright. Yeah, and let's hope it stays that way throughout the summer. Grassroots sport too has been curtailed, so the smiles on the youngsters' faces said it all as football returned with a bang. Development and competitive youth football matches resumed across Waveney and Great Yarmouth on Sunday, April the 11th, as a full fixture list of action saw scores of games played across the region. The popular East Point Sports Norfolk and Suffolk Youth League featuring numerous development matches for those aged under 7 to under 11 and league games for under 12s to under 17s, returned across Lowestoft, Beckles, Great Yarmouth and South Norfolk and North Suffolk. Many teams had not played since last October, so the return to football, with stringent rules still in place, was a welcome sight as teams complied with the government and the FA guidelines. Prior to the start of all games, a one-minute silence was impeccably observed in memory of Prince Philip. Boasting more than 45 youth and development teams, including 11 girls teams and a senior section, a full fixture list was operating once more at Waveney FC. With fixtures at Dip Farm and Barnard's Meadow Soccer Centre on Sunday April 11th, boys and girls from under 11 up to under 17 were back in action. Waveney FC club chairman Mark Gamble said, We owed it to our members to get back to football, as it is so important for mental and physical health. So after restarting our football activities from March the 29th for all youth and ladies teams, it's been great to see all the smiles on faces at training and matches. It's been a tough time for everyone, and credit must go to parents, spectators and all the boys and girls who've been so keen to get back, having been cooped up since the first part of this year, and lots more last year. Mr Gamble praised Sean Staniforth, the club's Covid officer, who has been very busy completing many risk assessments after being guided by the government and FA regulations over the last 12 months. He said, We're all very grateful to Sean for doing a fabulous job in difficult circumstances and doing an enormous amount of work to get everyone back training and playing. Mr Staniforth added, There's been lots of guidance to follow, but seeing the players back playing, and that's all ages, male and female, and it's been brilliant to see the smiles on the faces at training and now at the weekend fixtures. It does fill you with a lot of joy what we have done at this club, he said. To see the facilities open again and being used, it is fantastic. Well, to paraphrase Kenneth Wollstoneholm, they thought it was all over. Well, it's not now. Thanks, Andrew. That's the first time for a long time that we've managed 15 minutes worth of good news all in one lump. Long may it continue.
bound to do me good. Come right here to me, good news. Good news, you're what I've waited for. I wasn't slated for blues. Good news is welcome to me. Bad news is welcome to me. So, Mr. Good News, you're bound to do me good. Come right here to me, good news. Pasadena Roof Orchestra there with an appropriately titled song, Good News. Let's see what we can manage for the last part of the news. A woollen tribute to Prince Philip has been claimed as the work of a village-based group of guerrilla knitters. The colourful arrangement appeared atop a postbox, in keeping with the modus operandi of Hopton-on-Sea yarn bombers, whose Easter bombs are being hailed as cuddly works of art. The piece, near the Turnstone pub in Hopton, features the Queen's consort, who died on April the 9th, aged 99, standing proud in full naval regalia, a Union flag fluttering by his side. A spokesman for the 43-strong group, which features one male yarn bomber, said four members had planned the bomb in double-quick time and selected their target on a route used by children on their way to school. The wording says simply, Prince Philip, 1921-2021, to R.I.P., a spokesman for the anonymous group said, He seems to be going down very well. Everyone is surprised how quickly we got him in place. She said it had taken four people to complete the piece since Friday and that she had tasked her best team of crack knitters to get the important job done. Handily, the black topper had already been completed because it was destined for another bomb honouring the Norfolk Axton Rescue Service. The figure was completed overnight on Friday with a self-taught male knitter responsible for the flag. Meanwhile, the group's leader worked on the lettering, which took over five hours. She said she was blown away by the response in the village, with people on social media quick to applaud the effort and the quick turnaround time. The village has been home to 22 Easter bombs over the two-week break, with other creations by new groups inspired by Hopton popping up in Galston, Belton and Lowestoft, and a wool bin for donations has been set up in the village co-op. The spokesman, or spokesperson I think we should say, said it was important to remain anonymous because the purpose of their crafty actions was to put smiles on people's faces. Once identities were revealed, 
it would become about recognition and reward, which was a long way from what they wanted. A Valentine's yarn bomb saw the village blitzed in colourful creations, and since then the group has grown from 38 to 43. Now we did request further details from the yarn bombers, but all they would say is that we are a close-knit group and we work to a strict pattern and we're not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. Now, on to matters more mundane. Months of work to resurface more than 300 miles of roads in Norfolk will start this week. Norfolk County Council is spending about £9 million to put surface dressing on the roads, with the first work beginning on Thursday, April the 15th. The council says surface dressing will extend the life of roads, prevent potholes from opening up and provide a new skid-resistant surface to help reduce the risk of crashes. The work to lay a thin layer of bitumen and chippings on roads is carried out between April and September every year, and crews will be starting work in Caister, Ormsby St Margaret, Blowfield and Maltby on the Thursday. And as usual, a 20 mile per hour speed restriction will be in place for safety reasons. People living along the routes will get notification a day or two before the crews arrive and ask not to park on the road on the day of the work or the following day when surplus chippings will be swept up. Here's a sorry little tale. Children at Southtown Primary School returned to school after the holidays to discover their wildlife garden was off limits due to vandals. During the Easter holiday, the garden at the school was attacked by vandals who smashed up a bug hotel, set fire to a wooden bench, broke plastic seating and threw the children's gardening tools in the pond. Although the damage ran into hundreds of pounds, which essentially came out of the children's school budget, it was more the pointlessness that was upsetting, the school said. School support manager Zoe Chilvers said discovering the damage had been heartbreaking. Some of our children have only been in school for three weeks and they were excited to be coming back, she said. We've had it for a while, but we update it every year and it's a very important part of the children's learning. And it's really sad. The younger children make bird feeders and do pond dipping. She said the vandalism was just stupid, adding it's not achieved anything. Norfolk Police are appealing for information about the attack which took place between Friday, March the 26th and Monday, April the 12th. And meanwhile, the school is keen to hear from anyone who may be able to donate some new seating. If you can help, please call the school on 01493 653 908. Well, they do say laughter is the best medicine, but not so for these two likely lads. Two men have been jailed for stealing nitrous oxide from the James Paget Hospital. Four canisters of the substance, commonly known as laughing gas, were taken from the JPH at around 2am way back on September the 19th, 2019. Following an investigation by Norfolk Police's Moonshot East team, Jake Roberts, 24, of no fixed address, and Oliver Evans, 23, also of no fixed address, were charged with burglary in February 2021. Both Roberts and Evans were sentenced to 22 months in prison at Great Yarmouth Magistrates Court last Thursday, April the 8th. Now, this is really all about our glorious Golden Mile. Once upon a time, there were giant snails by the seaside in Norfolk which could take people on magical journeys into a fairy tale world. Well, if you grew up in the county, a ride on Great Yarmouth seafront snails was a rite of passage. The merest mention of the gigantic gastropods unleashes a veritable roller coaster of emotions from anyone who remembers climbing aboard. 
Those of a certain vintage will recall the tall hat-wearing giant brandishing a club that once stood guard outside the attraction, and near it, the huge boot, too big even for the giant, which was home to the little old lady and her children. Today's giant is a far less frightening chap, although I note he still wields a club, albeit without the unmistakable intent of his forebear. The boot was circled by a flying witch in a somewhat menacing manner, but she's moved to a far more desirable pad. More on that later. So, in order to welcome a brand new generation of thrill seekers, Great Yarmouth Pleasure Beach decided to give its Snails and Fairy Tales ride a facelift ready for a summer of fun and sun on the Golden Mile. Now, the ride has been part of the lineup since 1966 and is as well remembered by generations of Norfolk families as England's historic World Cup victory in the same year. Today's snails are the originals and include favourites such as the graduating snail, the police snail, the Scottish snail, the Sherlock Holmes snail and the regal snail, but the journey they take now is even more enchanting. This year riders will enter a brand new world of fairy tales, passing professionally designed and created sets, placing them in the heart of some of the best loved stories filled with magic and wonder. The ideas for the seven new sets were decided by Pleasure Beach co-directors and brothers Jamie and Aaron Jones, who then recruited a team to help turn their dreams into reality while maintaining the charm of the original ride. Fairy tales are part of everyone's life growing up, said Jamie. This gives the chance for parents to share those classic stories and fables with their children and enjoy the magic of the imagination. We all have our favourite fairy tale. Mine was Jack and the Beanstalk, he said. And this is a chance to experience them once again, bringing back our treasured childhood memories. Aaron added, It was important for us that we have kept the history and heritage of the ride alive. The ride has been there for so many years, so we did not want to do a complete overhaul of what was there previously. We hope that people of all ages will enjoy the improvements we've made, and I'm quietly confident they will. To create an immersive experience, always best when travelling by snail, the Jones brothers gathered the cream of the crop. The scenic painting and sign writing are the work of Bob Cushing and Christine Bardram, whose background is in theatre sets. The lighting is by John Henry Thurston and his team at Blackstar Live Limited. Landscaping is from Norwich-based Ben Willis Landscaping. And sound and audio is by Richard Swift of the Prestige Sound Company. Some new props, adding a different dimension, have been crafted by Ian Westbrook, a Norfolk-based designer who has created sets for West End Productions, international touring shows and the world-famous London Palladium pantomime. Ian said, I worked on the Aladdin and Hansel and Gretel sections of the ride. It was absolutely fantastic to have a role in revitalising an attraction which is a big part of the Pleasure Beach heritage. The Yarmouth Mercury's Stacia Briggs accepted the honour of being the first guest to ride on the improved snails and fairy tales and they're faster than a hot knife through butter, as she said. They're as much part of my Norfolk childhood as begging to see the mummified cat at the Norwich Castle Museum. Or was that just me, she added. As the ride chugs into life, you are taken straight into an underground Jack and the Beanstalk story, before emerging into the sunlight to see Hansel and Gretel making an ill-advised visit to the witch's sweetie-laden gingerbread cottage. This is where we'd normally get the chance to wave at the roller coaster riders as they pass by at great speed to our right before we enter Peter Pan's world, complete with pirates and their barrels of rum. 
Next door, Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs are back from a hard day's mining, hey-ho, and then we're plunged back into the darkness for the most thrilling part of the ride, Pinocchio, Aladdin and Alice in Wonderland. Look out for Aladdin's flying carpet, the incredible lighting that bathes Pinocchio in magic, and the winding track that takes us down the rabbit hole and into the topsy-turvy world where nothing is quite what it seems. The last room is a stunning recreation of Alice's tea party, complete with the Mad Hatter, the White Rabbit, the Cheshire Cat, or rather just his grin, playing card guards, and of course Alice herself. It's every bit as charming as it always was, but with a little bit more sparkle. If you've not been since you were a child, it's time you made a return trip. Far from hibernating during winter months, the Pleasure Beach has been a hive of activity in the lead-up to reopening. The park is now open at weekends and the May bank holidays, with plans to open full-time during the summer season with a closed gate system, limited capacity and other Covid-safe precautions. Despite the safety precautions, the same fun of the fair will be in evidence in all its whirring, spinning, death-defying, scream-if-you-want-to-go-faster, candy-floss and popcorn-favoured glory. Joyland at the other end of the Marine Parade, and this is going to spark a bit of a reaction, I'm sure, also boasts its own snails, one of the original rides from when the attraction opened in 1949. And I think if you mention snails to many, many people in Yarmouth and the surrounding area, it's going to be the Joyland snails. So, well done Pleasure Beach on revamping them. Um, I can see snail wars developing here. We've also got some facts about our seaside resort. So this is a bit like being on the chase here, but I'm going to uh, ask you a few questions with a few answers. Did you know Great Yarmouth was established as a seaside holiday resort between 1800 and 1860? But it was not until 1909 that a young C.B. Cochrane, later to become a world-famous impresario, was finally able to persuade the local council to grant a lease for a proposed seafront amusement centre. Little did he know what he was starting there. The original Pleasure Beach consisted of a scenic railway and little else. In 1911, another popular attraction arrived, the Joy Wheel, and the park attracted large crowds until 1914, when it closed for the war years. The historic wooden roller coaster was first ridden in 1929 as a scenic railway, for the Colonial Exhibition in Paris and moved to Great Yarmouth in 1932. I didn't know it started in Paris. I always thought it started down uh, in London or on the south coast. The 1915 Three Abreast Gallopers, which is the ride from the family of savages of King's Lynn, has been at the Pleasure Beach since 1954 and can carry 60 riders on the horses. I still think that's the scariest ride on the seafront. The Bottom Brothers arrived at the Pleasure Beach in 1954 and the two brothers, Albert and Jim, grew up in a fairground environment with the family firm J. Botton and Sons, who had operated a travelling fair around London in the south of England since 1923. And Jamie and Aaron are the fourth generation to help run the family-owned Pleasure Beach, which is one of the best-loved amusement parks in the UK, and certainly a jewel in our crown on the Golden Mile. <laughs> Well, that's it from this edition of Grapevine. The recording is copyright 2021 of the Great Yarmouth and District Talking Newspaper Association. Mm -hmm.
The news content is adapted mainly from the publications of Archant Limited and is used with their consent. However, the Great Yarmouthan District Talking Newspaper Association accept responsibility for editorial decisions made for this recording. Next week's newsreader will be Margaret, and we hope that we can look forward to welcoming you once again for much more of your local news. In the meantime, from all at Grapevine, we hope that you stay safe and well, and until next week, it's bye for now. Bye.